0: You're listening to the Cut Bangs Conversation, a hunting, fishing, and conservation-based podcast here in beautiful British Columbia. Proudly sponsored by Spruce City Wildlife Association. All right. Hello, everybody. Stevie Wonder, where are you? Steve's not in the studio. Steve's not at Bare Bones. Steve is coming to us via the interweb. What's going on, Stevie Wonder?
1: Well, this is what happens when you got a wife that works odd schedules with doctors. Uh, very good. Pe- 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 people get sick; they have eye problems. She stays late. I stay home, and I uh, come to you live via well, almost in like a godlike position, staring down on you from up above. It's pretty well, cool. Well, I, I like future it. sponsor Squadcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I can say this:
0: the booth has never smelled better without you in it. So.
1: <laughs> Clearly you haven't had any pepperoni today. That yeah,
0: yeah, true story, true story. Uh, we're here with Dan Orser from the Steelhead Society of British Columbia. Dan, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, we're going to get into a couple of things first, and then uh, we'll come back and we're going to talk all about steelhead and what's going on, or what's not going on, I think is probably closer to the truth. And we're going to talk a little bit about the condition of steelhead populations uh, and the role that Steelhead Society plays. But right now stevie let's talk about a couple things that are going on let's start let's start with some drama post goes up on bc hunting and fishing the other day and when i finally take a look at it i see that my good man my hunting partner has already kind of weighed in to turn off the comments or i think you took the post down didn't you
1: no it uh, we, we shut the comments down originally and uh, they're back open now so um, anyway the and I'm not trying to
0: you know I'm not trying to be rude but there was a lot of things uh, said about a potential Wild West shootout um, with a with a couple of guys hunting uh, south of here on a road that some of us in the PG and Quesnel uh, area know fairly well uh, anyway their allegation was made that they were shot at by somebody in a vehicle um, which sounded awfully alarming to those of us that hunt in the area and uh the thing that was conspicuous is uh you know a few hours later i hadn't heard a single police report didn't see a news story um and then i was starting to wonder and i started to notice that some of the q a in those posts was probably thinking exactly the same thing i am well where's the where's the police story and how come it's not in the news and how come no one's talking about it and then uh of course on my way home I called Steve and I was like what the hell is going on with this shootout like how why are we not hearing about this and Steve started to he'd already kind of gone down the road so Stevie bring us up to speed a little bit on kind of what your thoughts are.
1: It's it's an ugly one Uh automatically the what, what we think is holy crap what happened uh, is everybody okay we need a license number description and a little bit more information and the first thing that came to my mind with a situation like that is where the hell's the file number? We need to know what sort of uh, uh, official action's been taken. So I reached out to conservation officers. They hadn't heard about it except on Facebook. RCMP hadn't heard about it except on Facebook up here in PG. Turns out there is a file number in Quinnell. So uh, the, the, I, I guess the best case scenario has come out of this. Nobody was hurt. And we'll see what happens with the official investigation down the road. But if there's anything that happens like that, then you're running to social media with it. Give a bit better of a description and especially include a file number for those uh, RCMP members and conservation officers, NROs and anybody that's monitoring the pages because they're, they're out there patrolling. Hell, something, somebody can start shooting at them if we got uh, some sort of West shootout that uh, was stated. So, yeah, for everybody's safety, give as much information as possible.
0: Yeah, and I I think that was kind of the point of it is when you when you read it it sounded like there was uh, somebody gets shot at that's that's alarming and hey that absolutely is a code red to to signal out um but we're missing some context and I don't know that the that that would have come out um, or if it had come out, I would have assumed that there was already an active police investigation. I would have expected myself personally that information would have come from the police or the, the CO service. And when it didn't, it, it, to me, it instantly, some, I was missing something. But I think the, one of the things that happens in that is that somebody might hear that and then some poor schlep in a vehicle that fits that description could be driving along mining his own business and somebody decides to take him to task or think that he is a, a risk uh, and something bad happens. So I think it's better if something like that happens, get in like Steve said, you gotta get in touch with the authorities first. Let's dot some I's, cross some T's and use a little discretion. Uh, before we start calling that out, uh, and very, very, particularly with BC Hunting and Fishing, which is our largest uh, hunting and fishing page in the province. So uh, anyway, um, I, I, I guess we'll film at 11. We'll update you on the next episode in a couple of weeks and let you know what kind of what came out of that. Uh, other things in the news, Stevie, we had half a million people uh, sign petitions to end wolf hunting. Uh, in the good old province of British Columbia, and they submitted those signatures to the BC legislature.
1: Yeah. What does Ricky say? What does Ricky say? A Yeah, Yeah. A freaking a Yeah. Yeah. And- uh, like, like back what, February? We started ramping up for this saying that this was coming. Worst case, Ontario. Exactly. Exactly. Get two birds stoned at once, right? Yeah. And, We started talking about this in January, February of last year. We said, this is ramping up. We've got it from insider information that they're going to present a petition in a large number to the legislature at some point this year. And everybody there can, can vouch. We, we heard the pushback. Oh, no, they're not gonna. There there's nothing to worry about. They're not going to get anywhere near the numbers that they need to. And hell yesterday, 500,000 signatures were presented to uh, uh, staffer from Flinroe. yeah, and and you know you know what happened when we lost the grizzly hunt. You know how many you know how many signatures were presented to government? Four thousand. Four thousand. Four thousand government signatures were presented to government, and we lost the grizzly hunt. What do you think they're going to do with half a million? Yeah, right, absolutely. It's, it's, there, there's a vicious, vicious uh, fight coming and that that unless it, it might even be one-sided because right now it seems to be bloody one-sided hunters are our own worst enemies right and it's it's uh you can count on two hands how many people actually get up involved and and make a stance against crap like this and they, they fight for science-based wildlife management and to, for too long hunters have sat on their asses and said no we're okay we're okay but we're watching it get chipped away and chipped away and chipped away we lost the grizzly hunt Wolf is on the table now, and you know that uh in that paper they're referencing it's not just large carnivores, they've got bighorn sheep and elk is in there, and mountain goat, so it's it's a it's a fight for these same dozen people, right and I just don't know how many times we can say it you need to engage
0: yeah, you have to engage, and it's it's more than just signing an e signature um it's a little bit about um get, making your voice heard, but um if it if we just went signature for signature, uh we'd probably be somewhere um, but we don't, you know, we get, you know, 12 or 15,000 signatures and they get 50. And we say, well, it's not a threat. And somehow we feel that it's just going to look after itself. That if you just leave it alone, it'll just look after itself. So you've got a couple of days in the BC Supreme court already that have elapsed in July. So they could make their case heard. And they're from, you got three more days from the 27th to the 29th of October that they'll be hearing arguments on their petition. Uh, it's being led uh, by Pacific Wild, who has been at the the center of it, most of this stuff that we've been dealing with um, for for a number of years. And they will continue to be the people that are out leading that charge. Um, and I mean, it's, they, they have, um, they're, they're poo-pooing the science that it's attached to. Um, you know, one of the things that they talk about, which isn't incorrect, it's, you know, that we need to focus our our attention on the the human element um in terms of human impact on on habitat and where where caribou are concerned where a lot of this is taking place which is true but that's a 15 or 20 year correction (laughs) so to do that stuff the the you know trying to attend to the role of industry on the land base and try to find a way to peel back from that uh legislate it put corners on it um and and regulate it to the point where it's meaningful is it's it, that's a that's at least a decade long undertaking, um, if you have political will and you have some some resources that you can put at it, and then if as long as industry doesn't uh, bite back, and I think that we're gonna, and we're going to cover some of that when we talk about steelhead and and, uh, and and salmon because that that's also one of the the issues that we have is where industry is involved it doesn't move quickly. Anyway, this is a this is a sample of apathy, and it, you know, I I think. A lot of folks, um, you know, would be, I think they, they should accept quite fairly the criticism that we should put against ourselves, that there is a high level of apathy um, when it comes to some of these things, because I think a lot of times we just assume that somehow that fundamentally um, we have a right to, to be on the land and do the things that we do. Um, and that's absolutely not the case. It's not foundational. Uh, it's not constitutional. Uh, for For hunters in in Canada, so when things like this come up, and this is a management question this is a this is a wildlife management question um, that level of intervention isn 't just recreation it 's required to you know for the survival of the caribou. the interesting thing in the argument is these folks are really concerned about you know one specific species, and if they weren 't managed, I wonder how much outrage they would have if all of a sudden. Caribou went into complete extirpation if we'd have the same level of outrage that in an animal like wolves that it has such a high impact on a number of populations um, was you know one of the th- would be the, would it be the the principal cause of the demise and has been one of the principal causes of the demise at least of caribou in certain herds I mean it's certainly one of the significant mortality mortality elements but I would I would I would I've always wondered what would happen with Pacific Wild if all of a sudden there were no caribou and wolves were squarely at the center of that, would they accept that as the truth? Even if even if the science said that it was? And would they advocate I, I doubt that they would, but
1: No, because what was it in Quebec that they uh the the anti group out there said let caribou go go extinct, we can't save them? Yeah.
0: And I mean I I, I guess we, we've said this on this podcast a number of times. I don't remember the last time they protested for wolves. What? Pardon me. Protested on behalf of moose. Pardon me, instead of wolves. So it's wolves and grizzly bears and you know cougars and coyotes. It's any of the money? Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's, it's any of the money-making species. Yeah, for sure. Right. When when you're seeing somebody like Brian Adams, who's a worldwide celebrity from Vancouver, coming out and saying, "Don't call the 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 coyotes in Stanley Park," even though we've had over 40 bites, including one on a two-year-old. It, it, these these animals are. Taking over in areas that uh, they never traditionally been. I, I I don't know what it is. Is it so, because they're so close to being uh, uh, your your household dog, or there's commercials about uh, these bears wiping their asses, and and there's Coca Cola bears and all that. You there's something there that we're missing, and they've uh, there's an interview I, I've referenced before, it goes back to like the 70s or early 80s with Paul Watson from Greenpeace. And he said if he ever wanted to make money, he would start uh, centering his cause around wolves and bears. And here we are 40 years later. It's not Greenpeace moving on it, but it's other ones that have picked up that uh, ball and ran with it. They, they know what's driving their, their, their fundraisers. And it certainly isn't species that are perceived edible, right? Because people are going to go, well, I can get behind hunting for that they're going to start picking away the low hanging fruit where you can't eat that. You can't eat that. That's too close to a house pet. Not I think that's what we're fighting there. And it's, it's, we're spinning our tires. Yeah. And I, I guess
0: the part, part of the issue is that when we just sit on our hands um, or or the thing that we add into the conversation is that, you know, um, when we're saying like kill them all and smoke a pack a day and some of those other things that I don't think needed to be, I don't think those need to be in the conversation. Wolves need to be managed, no different than you know. You got too many deer, um, and you're running an orchard. I guess we need some mule deer taken out if I'm trying to run an orchard, you know, or if I'm trying to run. I mean, in, in what?
1: In... What's ironic is you look at some of these these people screaming and yelling about save the wolves. They're the first ones to come up and say you got to get rid of these deer. They're eating my. They're my yeah. eating my tulips in my in my garden. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't I... it doesn't it doesn't make sense, right? And it. I, I I don't get it. And the, you know, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to pull the, the government's going to go, okay, we've heard you and we're going to pull that regulations lever instead of making any sort of tangible changes on uh fourth range practices act or harvest rates when it comes to, uh, to removing fiber from the landscape or back burns or controlled burns or anything like that. They're going to pull that regulations lever because it's immediate and it's perceived it, it's, it's got that perceived value of doing something. And and that leads us right into the next conversation we wanted to have, right? About region four, like with the, the, the sheep, like Flynn, Flynn Rowe, like wild sheep society today, put out a uh, little membership call input for, for people to have their say that the bios in region four developed a regional bighorn sheep management plan. And you know what that means? They, they're trying to meet management, uh, objectives which is good managing to a certain number uh reduce the harvest of illegal rams and improve the quality of the hunt for for resident and non-resident hunters and what do you think that lever they're going to pull is the number one thing they want to do instead of improving habitat or or knocking down predators or anything like that they want to put it on leh and that's that's something we've seen around the province for years instead of doing something tangible that's got a long year like 5 10 15 20 year plan they're doing that immediate snap the fingers oh look look we're trying we're trying so go to the WildSheepSociety.com website and or facebook and have your say it takes two minutes just what sort of uh, thoughts do you have on that and just As somebody who's been involved in these fights for years, it's disappointing yet again to be seeing uh, government and uh, reaching out for for LEH and uh, pulling that regulations lever. Well, and yeah, and and to that, I mean, there's
0: other things, like I said, habitat and and some of the other things that probably get you the long-term result that you want. Um, They avoid some of the prickly parts like, you know, predator management always, and I think even people that do it would accept it's a short-term solution. Um, and it's not, it's not what you would want to do first. It's what you would want to do second or, or as something as a supplement, but not your main thrust. And in this particular case, um, there's other things that can be done to put more sheep on the mountain, moose in the swamp, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, caribou on the plateau. There's other things that can be done other than, than, um, than wolf management, but (laughs) you need some serious political will to do that. And that starts with when, when there's an opportunity to get in front of something like it was with this wolf uh, engagement piece that's been circulating around hunting circles for, I would say, three years now, uh, where there's been a lot of volume at it, we need to attend to that and add our voices to it and add add our thoughts um, into the conversation. And now with something like the sheep management proposal, uh, people got to speak up. I, I, I don't hunt sheep, right? I, I don't hunt sheep. I don't hunt caribou. Um, I don't fish for salmon, but I'm trying to contribute my voice to that wherever possible and support whatever whatever those initiatives would be that that, that fairly represent the protection of the species and protect opportunity as well. Um, you know I, I want to balance the, I want to balance the equation. I want to protect the animal first, but that you know those are all manageable. They're all and they can be sustainable um, harvest opportunities for hunters and anglers. So, uh, when there's issues like this, we got to make sure that we're being part of the conversation and not just sitting back and throwing stones and just saying, you know, it's out of our control or there's nothing that we can do and it doesn't matter. Um, you know, and I find it interesting that, you know, every, the only thing that keeps coming back that anybody wants to add their voice to is let's get the grizzly bear hunt back. Sure. But you're also not going to get the grizzly bear hunt back with three or 4,000 signatures, right? you know if it t- if it's 500,000 probably doesn't end the wolf hunt and I'm telling you 5,000 people bitching about the grizzly bear hunt doesn't bring it back so we need to do way more than we're currently doing and it's more yeah. about it's more than just complaining we got to start to take a look and and support, uh, or, or, or add, add add meaningful commentary into it, um, not just uh, objection for the sake of objecting, not the not just being contrary for the sake of being contrary. Um, think about what you're going to add into it. Be informed in your in your perspective, or get informed for your perspective, and add your voice into the conversation. And when there's an opportunity to sign your name, sign the fucking thing. So,
1: yeah, you, you know what number does stick out though. Speaking of numbers, what's that? Sixty thousand. You know what number I'm referring to there? No. The highest wildlife fine ever put out under the Provincial Wildlife Act. 5 days ago, a lady in Whistler was nailed with $60,000 for feeding black bears. No shit. Yeah. Oh, I thought you would have heard all about that. How long was she doing it for again, Steve? Oh, they started investigating her in I believe it was July 2018. Yeah, I thought it was over a few black years. Bears. Yeah, hold on. Let me pull it up here. There it is. 10 cases of apples, 50 pounds of carrots, up to 15 dozen eggs a week to feed these animals. Wow. You mean the largest single fine ever issued
0: on a Wildlife Act violation was not to a person who hunts or fishes?
1: Crazy how that happens. Hey, I'm What? You
0: what? The most irresponsible behavior. Let me get this straight. The single... Most egregious, irresponsible behavior in an interaction with wildlife. The fine was not... This was not to a hunter.
1: No. Crazy my happens, God. Hey.
0: My God. What are the odds? Hunters,
1: hunters follow the law and care about wildlife. Yes, they do.
0: Yes, it's, they it's do. It's crazy.
1: I I, I sound like a dick, but I laughed my balls off when I read that because I remember when it first came out in 2018. They, they had to kill a few bears that were... Uh, habituated, causing damage. What? No fear around people. <laughs> what? Oh yeah, yeah.
0: You mean a non-hunter's yeah. behavior led to the demise of a, of an animal, right? Three of them. Three of them. Hmm. Three of them. I wonder how that. I wonder who, how that worked. Who knew? Sixty thousand reasons to love that decision. I dig it. Absolutely, I dig it. Okay, well, that's. Let's end on a high note.
1: S- speak speaking of sixty thousand, that's probably. uh what you've spent this uh, last couple of years at our uh, our upcoming commercial, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's been a few there's been a few shekels spent with our good friend Omer at Precision Optics. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Dan Orser and Steelhead Society. Cheers. Hey, you want a hot tip on how to get yourself dialed in this hunting season so you're ready when that big old bull or that beautiful broom ram steps into view? Can you picture it? I sure can. Maybe you just want to be like me and hit the range and ring some steel at a few hundred yards i don't care what your reasons are but here's my hot tip you ready you listening you got to get yourself set up with one of precision optics complete range and hunt ready packages omer's done all kinds of work on these things all the rifle and scope packages that he's got have been professionally zeroed ballistically calibrated optimized and range tested for precise accuracy i don't even know what the heck that means but it sure sounds impressive and who has done all of that work Omer, why? Because he knows what he's doing. This guy shoots. Every single week, this guy's out there shooting. So the guns that he's selling you, the guns that Optics, he is field testing them, putting them in these dial packages, the chronograph range tested out to 540 yards. These rifle packages are designed to fit your shooting and hunting applications and are built around your personal budget and your input and your needs. This guy absolutely knows what he's doing, and, and I'll tell you, he's got a few on the shelf right now. Maybe it's a Seiko Hunter and six and a half Creedmore, Creedmoor. You know Creedmoor, the one you can shoot the moon with, with a Burr's signature 5x25x50. By by or maybe it's a Fierce TI Edge and 7 Rem Mag with a Zeiss Conquest 4x16x44. Uh, by by I don't know. Like, there's scopes all over the place. There's rifles all over the place. No budget, too big. No budget, too small. The guy can find a solution for anybody. If you want to shoot and you want to hunt or you just want to hit to the range, this is the guy that you need to see Precision Optics is the place you need to go. There are plenty of ready-built dialed-in packages available right now, or give Omer a call and you can build out your own. Get dialed in at Precision Optics online on the interweb at precisionoptics.net or see them in person inside Aroma Foods in beautiful, sunny, not quite downtown, Quinnell, British Columbia. Tell them Don sent you. Cheers. All right, we are back, and we are here with Dan Orser. Dan? So you are from Prince George? I am
2: born and raised in Prince George, yep.
0: Born and raised in Prince George. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So other than being from here, uh, how do you make your way in the world? And uh, let's talk a little bit about not only how you make your way in the world, how did you end up with the Steelhead Society? So.
2: Okay, so yeah, I was, uh, I've lived here my whole life, and I've um, always been avid outdoorsman, mostly fishing, a little bit of hunting here and there, but uh, basically started with parents taking me camping, the usual PG kid stuff. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so through uh, basically spending time in Terrace and Smithers and places like this, I ended up meeting a few guys from Steelhead Society Northern Branch, which is based out of Terrace. Okay. And uh, they just basically got me involved in it, and the way I was looking at it by the point by the time I got involved was that I have taken enough out of fishing um, that it was probably time to start putting some back in. So when you meet,
0: when you say that, because I've heard that analogy from other folks, you mean taking enough out of the river or just taking you know, enough out of the experience? No,
2: out of the experience. Yep. Out of the experience. I've spent so much time on the water. And then, of course, um, you know, growing up here and, and seeing the big picture of what it was like from when I was a kid to what it's like now, you start to see that things are not going well and that maybe... Uh, just buying a fishing license and contributing to the HCTF probably isn't quite enough to keep things going so,
0: <laughs> so you thought you'd do a little bit more than that yeah okay. yeah so you when you so when you started w- when did steelhead become a thing for you when did steelhead fishing specifically become a thing
2: so for you? steelhead for me was kind of a natural progression um growing up here was the the usual go fishing with dad trolling around the lake for trout or you know that kind of thing and then um a uh, good friend of mine and I that I've fished with since we were both probably eight years old and still fish together every year. Um, as time goes on, you look for more and more of a challenge. And I, I kind of liken it to someone who starts out hunting grouse and then ends up on the top of a mountain chasing sheep. It's kind of the same idea. Yeah, right. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, so one thing leads to another and you're looking for the next challenge, the next challenge. And it uh, turns out steelhead or it, so...
0: And they were at that. So yep. for, for you, it was, and you, you, you fish for salmon as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. And, but, but steelhead are, and I'm not an angler. So, I mean, in steelhead to me is, I mean, I'm from Saskatchewan. So steelhead reference has always been someplace else. Um, and, you know, I've heard of it. And since I've been here, it seems very coveted. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that.
2: So first of all, what is the steelhead? Salmon or trout? So a steelhead is a Trout. Okay. It is not a salmon. It's an anadromous rainbow trout. Okay. Which means that um, its life history, instead of spending its life in a river or spending its life in a lake and spawning in a creek, you know, that's generally how rainbow trout live. um, A steelhead, it goes to the ocean uh, based on usually environmental factors. um, If you look at coastal rivers, they are not terribly fertile because they're, they're, they're cold and they, they flush out all the time from big coastal storms, this kind of right. stuff. So it's kind of an adaptation that if they don't reach a certain weight by a certain point in their life, they head downstream because they need to eat. Okay. So that's, anadromous is a fish that goes to the ocean um, after it's hatched, at some point in time after it's hatched from a, from an egg, you know. Okay. And uh, comes back to spawn, which is exactly the same, like, like a salmon does, same type of life history, but... Um, Okay, they're not a salmon. They are a trout.
0: But that, but it's always interesting because it's always a question. Whenever you, I've googled,
2: it, yeah. I've googled it, and it's like, what is
0: it? Is it a salmon? Is it yeah. a trout?
2: <clears throat> and it's interesting that there is so much confusion around that because they are they are a rainbow trout. Like there's no, there's no no scientific doubt about that. Bigger. But I think it's because yes, they generally are bigger. Okay. okay, they generally are bigger, and that does depend to some point, which we'll talk about after. I'm sure their life history and where what their natal stream is they're all a little bit different so but are as they As a rule they are much bigger
0: i they? and are as a as a, as a as a fish that comes back is it always coming back to its natal stream
2: yes in the sa- in the same sense that salmon do there's always exceptions and that's part of why they're able to survive because you always get one or two that'll get lost and pick a different river or a different timing. But as a rule, yes, that is what they do. They do it in the same sense that salmon do is they'll come back to their natal stream. Natal stream and not lakes. Uh, no, they, they're, they're a river spawner for they're, sure. They're a river spawner <clears throat> for sure. Yeah, okay. and, if, and I mean, if they're going in from a lake to a river, if that's a rainbow trout, that's not a steelhead. That, so. That's a ra- okay. Yeah. very, Okay, very, very good. Okay, so you've got
0: – so let, let's wrap my head around. Explain to me why the mystique – and why steelhead? Because as you said, your progression in fishing, the the, the pinnacle of the achievement ends up being steelhead. And I, I don't mean it's... Steelhead to me is, is a little bit like sheep hunting, right? There's There feels like there's... And, and I'm not saying it's true. I don't want to cast dispersions on anglers that are listening. But it feels like there's a level of, not elitism, but that catching steelhead is a different deal than just... You know going to catch some trout like it's a it's a different deal it's on another it's on another level or it's a it, and it's it you know i and I hear it romanticized quite a bit uh, by people that do it so what's the difference? I mean, to me, it's like it's a trout, and the only difference is is yep. that one goes out to the ocean and comes back, but otherwise we're trout fishing so why is steelhead so coveted
2: so there's a few reasons I think the main reason is that There really aren't as many of them. So when you think of salmon fishing, well, the way salmon fishing was up until relatively recently, there's a lot of fish, and there's a lot of people fishing, you know, in in July, August. Like, nice weather, people all over the place, everyone's catching fish. Whereas steelhead, um, whereas salmon will run in, in the millions, steelhead run in the hundreds to thousands. There's just not as many of them. Okay. So that's part of it, is it's a little bit more of a hunt for a few fish that hopefully you've timed right and there's so many variables involved, all this. Um <clears throat> the the other thing being that I've to, and again this is a lot of this is personal. Like for everyone's a little different and why they chase them, but for me a lot of it is where you're you're finding them. Uh you're you're generally not sitting on a bar in Kitamat, like a bar on a river, sitting there with a million other people. You're in these gorgeous little tributaries that are a little higher up in the watershed and it's just it's yeah the, the whole scene is just a little bit different
0: so do they are, now is that just where you go to fi- where you go to find them or are you generally finding steelhead in slightly more pristine isolated river systems slower moving water like are, are there any indicators or you can find them anywhere because i mean trout fishing largely is like walleye fishing here is very much like walleye fishing or, or, or pike fishing in saskatchewan generally pick a place where there's Water And more more often than not you find it
2: sort of yeah, <clears throat> sort of, but the thing is with trout fishing, so and you, you you're what you're referring to is like lay, tr- trout fishing in a lake, yeah, which is totally different from actual trout fishing in a river perfect okay. um and that, so that's another part of the the thing with steelhead is that they never seem to quite lose their that little base instinct of how a trout acts right, so the the other novelty with them is especially for fly fishermen is that they will behave like. A resident trout so where you'll get a resident trout that's 10 12 inches long right and it'll come up and sip a dry fly there are times of the year and conditions where a 20 pound steelhead will do that as well
0: so this is like a like a super versatile like this this fish plays across a wide spectrum of angler engagement yeah so yeah because i yeah i've given it's given me lots lots of looks it's a little bit challenging
2: kind of elusive right and the funny thing is, is at times they're actually almost the least challenging thing in the river. Like when, when they're happy, they're, they're, they're like a trout down and then a on a sunny day. Like they'll just about hit anything, but you have to find them. It's the finding them part. It's the finding them part because they run in lower numbers. Right. But, okay. but again, it, it's also the behavior. So, and a lot of it goes to, and the experience would be different for me because I fly fish. I have fished them before with with gear, like with that's how I started with them. Was fishing the same way I fished for salmon, you know, when I was younger with spoons and spinners and stuff like that. But when I really, really got into it, it was with fly, because you do start to see that this is just like fly fishing for a little trout, you know, in a little in the bower and wherever, somewhere around here. But they're big, and you know, it's just it's a whole other it's animal. It's a whole other animal. Yep. All right. It's, I it's it. quite hard to explain, but it is a, it's definitely, as you say, like with, with as far as being an elitist thing, you, you would, of course, the, us who fish for them try not to fall into that, but, yeah, but it's like, it's, it's like the guys that
0: sheep hunt that everybody says they're not elitist, but it it takes, it takes a different, it's, they're not elitist, but the process is,
2: you, you need to want to do it. I, I know a lot of people who will sit on a lake all day in June in, in plus 20, nice weather, and they'll catch big trout. They're very good at it. They'll catch big trout and they'll catch, uh, you know, twenty, thirty a day. That's not what this is. This is this is more about the chase than it is about the the result. Yeah, and I and I
0: think that that's probably the 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 difference. And and from the as an as an outsider looking in at it, I've often wondered, you know, what's wrapped or something baked into the experience that you know, as a guy that doesn't fish, I've often wondered be, because of the language that's wrapped around it. Because there's a there's a steelhead society. I mean, not that there's you know there's people that fish trout and there's people that fish salmon. But steelhead, you know, people that fish steelhead tend to identify as steel. You know, I'm not just an angler, I'm a steelhead fisherman, right?
2: We're a little strange, yeah.
0: Yeah, but, but I mean, <laughs> but it's the same with people that, you know, alpine hunters or guys that are, you know, mountain hunters or goat hunters. I'm just a hunter, right? Uh, with no specific uh, preference. But um, now you got me thinking that maybe I'm missing out on this whole steelhead thing. So elitist uh, this is, is such an ugly word, too. I prefer prestigious. There you go yeah <laughs> yeah, well, yeah that's I, a better word Let's yeah. what well, we're going to use that well the so. way
2: a good friend of mine a good friend of mine put it he's a very smart guy, very good trout fisherman and I was talking to him uh, one day about why he doesn't uh really fish steelhead when he's just so avid at fly fishing and for for trout and he said uh, uh, it's not for me it's too much of a religious experience and I kind of laughed Because that's <laughs> just just about what it is really
1: Stevie, have you fished for steelhead? I have. Uh, I grew up in Vancouver, as you know, and I I remember God would have been going back 30 some odd years in the the Thompson right around uh, uh, Boston Bar, that sort of area there. You'd see shoulder to shoulder people with their big spay rods there and it was was a hell of a fishery. And being involved with spruce now and uh, Federation over the years and just watching it do this and come down and come down and come down. But some of my best memories are just chucking the gear. And when they hit, they're, they're a freight train. They, they, they come out of the water and they, they'll spool you quick and there, there's just something about them. And prestigious is a good way of uh, doing it, Matt. I I like what you say, what way you say that it's prestigious. There's something Uh about them. There's a mystique
0: yeah it, there is a mystique like like i guess anything that we pursue and that we love right um so let's talk a little bit about um where we're at with with steelhead and i think this ties into a little bit um i want to start first with the question um l- why w- the steelhead society of bc was it formed just because it, it's it's a group of people that you know share a common love for for fishing steelhead or was it you know some organizations are born because they're trying to you know advocate for the sport some of these organizations exist like wild sheep for instance that are they're really about trying to protect a species and then the rally point becomes really about trying to preserve something or protect something not just to celebrate something um so what what led to the creation of the steel the steelhead society
2: yeah it was absolutely the conservation end of it it was um in the 70s i believe. Um, Based on the fact that there was kind of a vacuum there for a, a group specifically speaking for steelhead. Right. Um, you've always had like the BC Wildlifes and stuff like that around, and salmon has always been a focal point in BC, but um, steelhead, part, part of the issue is what we just talked about actually is that it's a very small, dedicated group that actually fishes them regularly and pays attention to what's going on with them. And uh, that kind of... On one end, it's good because you don't have as much pressure on them. Usually, on the other end, it's not it's not ideal because you don't have as many eyes on them either. Right. So that was that was the beginning of it. Was more to to fill a gap in um, in a voice for them. Essentially, was that and in, in the thing that that led that. In,
0: if we look at their the the genesis moment, or at least as the as the organization is has come to exist um is there, a, is there a, a moment where people were like hey listen like things are going things are going poorly for steelhead um was there a precipitous decline that said like, like we got to take action um you know w- and w- sort of what timeline did that kind of cover
2: yeah it was uh like i say it was early 70s i believe it was 1970 actually and <clears throat> what it mostly coincided with was um the decline in um habitat in Vancouver Island rivers okay because uh, w- what happened there, as you probably know, is major, major logging of old growth. And it's uh, it had pretty terrible effects on, on the rivers. And it's still happening right now. Like, a lot of those rivers are pretty well done as far as steelhead are concerned just because um, the habitat's been degraded so badly and hasn't come back. And I I, I believe that was kind of the timeline that, that fit in there. Uh, Vancouver Island was the focal point originally.
0: And then that, th- those, those sorts of, I mean, you can use Vancouver Island is that's kind of where it starts. But then do we start to see that ripple effect as you move up, um, the contributing rivers out of the Fraser and the Thompson, Chilcote and Skeena, et cetera. Absolutely. You start to see the same thing moving yeah. north, right? Yeah. You start to see declines across, um, <clears throat> just some, some reference numbers that uh, you had provided me. thompson Chilcotin historic averages uh, were in you know, a little greater than 3,000 to 2,000, upwards of 7,000 combined at peak. 2020 spawners were down to like 27 in the, 257 in the Thompson and 38 in the Chilcotin. Um Now, if we want to reference that, and we're going to come back to this phrase um, in a little bit, extreme conservation concern for those streams, if you remember your historic numbers at 3,000 greater than or greater than 2,000, an extreme conservation concern for the Thompson is less than 430 and for the Chilcotin is less than 300. And you're sitting at 257 and 38 fish. So, I mean, that's catastrophic. You've got the Skeena with a historic uh, historic uh, run average of over 60,000 fish, 2020, uh, 15,709. You know, that's 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 an insane number, right?
2: Uh, so this year, um, the Skeena actually—I I had never even heard this this um, this number before because we just hadn't really got there in, in my time since I've been fishing them. But extreme conservation concern for the Skeena is eight thousand fish. And uh, you got to think how big the Skeena watershed is. It's yeah, it's, it's massive. A, yeah. It's the whole Northwest and BC for the most part and uh so yeah 8,000 fish for that whole watershed is extreme conservation concern as of right now the um estimate in the Skeena is just a little under 5,300 fish this season
0: and based on that the abundance estimates put it at the lowest in the last 66 years of of recording
2: as long as they've been recording they've never seen it run this bad yeah
0: so, I mean, th- that becomes uh, the Bulkley River. Just to, to to kind of, I guess, run this out. Uh, generally, sees fifty percent, uh, around fifty percent of the Skeena steelhead. The twenty twenty run estimate was fifteen hundred fish, thirteen uh, percent of the average and worst run on record. And I can only assume that that twenty twenty one estimate will be even lower than that. So.
2: Yeah, as far as I know, uh, the way they so, the way they. Um estimate fish in the Skeena is they use, uh, what's known as the Thai test fishery yeah. in the lower Skeena. And that's between Terrace and Prince Rupert. And they have essentially a gill net boat that will net at set times every day, which is ba- based on tides. Um, and they use that as their, as their sort of benchmark to estimate how many fish are in the system. It's set up specifically for sockeye and calibrated to sockeye, but it does give us an idea of all the other fish. So that that's what gives us our Skeena numbers. As far as the Bulkley's concerned, they do a beach saying it's called, where they net, pull into the beach, count them, and that's at Morristown, uh, Whitset they call it. And um, as far as I know, they haven't caught enough steelhead in that to even really make an estimate this year. Wow.
0: So that's even, and it's, so it's even worse from the numbers that I just presented.
2: Yeah, it's it's really bad. And the Bulkley is generally like like i say it's around 50% i believe of of total skeena fish that that's when you when you drive out west you go through houston there's the world's largest flyer out all there all that like that's it's all about steelhead out there and it, it's just it's toast like there's nothing there right now so it's very very concerning
0: so when when you what are the things that what, what 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 do we feel are the are the the principal causes of the decline of steelhead? If we take a look at it, like if from a scientific standpoint, you know, what are the things that we point to? Habitat obviously being one of them. Habitat. Absolutely,
2: habitat okay. is huge. Um, from from what we're seeing, one of the one of the biggest ones is climate change, because what happens is is the the North Pacific is very much reliant on temperature, and a low temperature, right? For the you know the the keystone's of the food chain, so krill, plankton, this kind of stuff, and everything builds off of these little bugs apparently, so, or essentially. Sorry, but so what happens is when we get these warm water events in the North Pacific, like we've had fairly regularly since 2013, almost, um, <clears throat> the productivity goes down and there's less food to go around. Right. And now here we are. We're starting to see, and I mean this is the same thing that's happening to salmon as well, is one of the big factors. So that that's one of the big ones. Another one is um, non-selective commercial fisheries, net fisheries, um, definitely do have an effect. Bycatch? Yeah, bycatch. Um, because a, a large component of a steelhead run in Skeena especially does coincide as very similar timing to sockeye. Okay. And sockeye is the big commercial catch. Right. So there is a lot of bycatch with, with the sockeye. That said, this year... There was little to no commercial opening, so we can't just, you know. You
0: can't just point it strictly. No, and
2: especially as sport fishermen, right? Like, I <clears throat> That's one thing I try to stay away from as much as I can, you know, pointing the finger. It's not us, it's them. Yep. It's not us, it's them. It can't be us. It's got to be that, that net boater. It's, you know, I hear a lot too, especially out there, oh, you know, First Nations, they they can net the river all they want, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're all in this together, and we've got to stay away from that. Um, and especially this year, again, with such limited net openings, we can't just sit there and point the finger at that. So clearly there's more going on. Does that have an effect over a period of time, you know, going back further than this year? Of course it does, but...
0: we, we all, Yeah, we, every, everybody's effort, w- whether it was, you know, well-intended or, or otherwise, everybody's cumulative effort over the last 30 years ends up here. So everybody yes. everybody yeah. has a component of in course. it. Of course. But, yeah, the the idea of finger-pointing and trying to weight out the blame is we're way past that point. Right? right. But the
2: big one does seem to be climate. And of course that that goes on to river conditions as well because what we've been seeing the last little while is, you know, and, and it's it's very similar to the weather we see here. You'll get one summer that's extreme hot, drought, not enough water. And then the next one is just the monsoon season all year. So what's happening to these rivers is you'll have poor conditions all year, but not the same poor conditions. They'll either be way too high Yeah. And you'll get mudslides and siltation and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Or they'll be way too low and the water's too warm. Right. So it's it's extreme conditions are, are definitely not helping. There's just no, doesn't seem to be any natural regulation of temperatures and levels anymore it's all over the place
0: so what are the mitigating components that can go into improve habitat like what are the, like so you have some of some of these things like global warming um y- river conditions some of it is some of it certainly is uh, based on how we do land harvest right siltation yeah. etc certainly become can be affected by that um certain levels of uh, pollution in certain water systems some of that's from agriculture some of it's from other things um You know there's there's a lot of things that are getting put into the mix so what do we think from a a trying to rebound those populations are there are there things that you can do and that we are we will find success at that puts more steelhead back in the river
2: yeah so um you said an industry is is huge i mean we we have to be very careful with how we log these valleys, especially in steep terrain, like I go, I go back to Terrace because again I spend so much time out there fishing. Yep. That's my, that's where I go. Um, we have seen fairly recently some slides in, in upper smaller tributaries where it'll all fall into the river. The river will mud out, and then we'll be, you know, I have friends of mine who live pretty much right on the Skeena, or the tributaries of it. Um, we'll be sending me pictures. Oh, look, the river blew out, and blah blah blah. And then we start talking about it, and then someone will go for a drive up the valley. And, oh, it slid, and then they'll see where. Oh, it just so happens there's a huge cut that may they may be cut a little bit too big on a little too steep, a little too close to the river. And these things we can't afford to be making these mistakes anymore, right? So, I mean, we, we need to find a way, like I, you know, growing up in Prince George, and uh, I, I work in industry as well. I do understand that we do have to have industry and all that, but we, it seems to me that we keep putting a crutch on, we all need jobs and it doesn't hold them to account. So I think in the, in the near term, that's one of the biggest ones is stop making excuses for poor behavior. Yep. From big industry, right? It can be done responsibly. Everything
0: can be, whether it's, you know, it, it isn't just forestry. It's all levels of industry. I mean, you can look at the impacts of coal, um, you know, with selenium deposits, et cetera. When you look as we go into the Kootenays and into the Flathead River system and the impacts that we have on, you know, cutthroat trout and things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, we well, I was,
2: it, I was at Quinnell Lake when Mount Pauly let it go. Yeah, so exactly. There's, there's another one, right? Yeah,
0: so, I mean, there's there's lots of things that, that you know, we can do proactively um, and, 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 and be better guardians of the land base. Um, but again, it's like, it's no different than what we talked about earlier when we were talking about wolves. Um, and in trying to recover caribou or trying to fix moose populations, any of these things can be done. There needs to be the political and social will to do it, um, and you have to be willing to, like you said, uh, hold people to account, right? And and agree that there there we need that we can do better. I mean, I don't understand why you have um, the Species at Risk Act for salmon, for steelhead, for caribou when we don't do anything with it. I mean, to to sound an alarm that doesn't do anything other than say, yep, it sure does suck, I mean, and have no teeth to it, no consequence to the industry, no consequence to the people charged, whether it's DFO in the case of, uh, you know, fisheries, which, um, I mean, that's on their watch. These things that happen are, 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 are in the... It's in their care and control. I like this one. You know, uh, Christy Miller, who we'll reference when we sit down with uh, Alexandra Morton in a couple of weeks. You know, she's referenced in that book a couple of times uh, that I'm reading. Uh, not on my watch. always talk about the uh, the salmon farm issue, but there's a there's a quote that I found, and it sort of references. It's actually on an article about uh, steelhead. But one of the things that she said, and she's a you know a fisheries biologist that works for DFO. But she said Dio, DFO is insufficiently independent from industry, meaning that they're they're not acting as an independent body. They're acting in conjunction with industry, not separate from industry. So they need to have regulations that they and and policies that that they hold true to. And industry has to work within those parameters. Not, we will develop policy that allows industry to do what industry wants. Those things need to be separated, like church and state. Um, and that, that applies to how we manage wildlife, um, where we put roads, it doesn't really matter. Wherever the wild world and, and the the modern world or the industrial world come together, those things need to be separate. and And they need to be... In some cases, rigid, because it's when we let their somebody get their toe in the door on something um, that it gets pushed wide open, and then we have a we have a difficulty pulling ourselves back from it, right? So, and I think that that's the, and I mean it's like that, you know, here in the U.S. and other places, it it'll be I I just I think there's a lot of challenge trying to 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 bring the bring government to understand that, to get industry to understand that, and everybody to accept their part in it. Um, but we need to be a lot more heavy-handed with a lot more consequence, I think, in the policies and stuff that we
1: advocate for. Sorry, I'll, I'll throw in quickly here. Like, all you have to do is look at the name of the the managing uh, uh... Ministry, Department of Fisheries and Ocean, right? Yeah, that says exactly. right there that yeah, they're not, not caring about... Yeah. It's not fish. And and as you said, uh, they need to distance themselves. What was it three years ago, Dominic LeBlanc, uh, the former fisheries Fisher minister, minister, was yep. nailed for a... Yeah, nailed for a conflict of interest for giving a, a, a clam license or something to his wife's cousin's company. That's what happens when you got the fox in the hen house, right? Yep. And that's what's happening... Time and time and time again, with, with uh, the way things are managed.
2: Yeah, and that—that's pretty much exactly what I was going to say. Is that they're—they're they're managing it as managing a, a resources and wealth, basically. Like we—we we need to protect our money here, and how many salmon can we harvest until they're zero? And that's all they're—it seems some days like that's all they're looking at. Their staff on the ground, no. But as far as the mandate as a yep. department goes, that absolutely. Is I mean, if if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, Absolutely. it's probably a duck. Um, Absolutely. The other trouble with steelhead is that they fit directly in between federal and provincial yeah. because they are mm-hmm. not salmon. They're not salmon. I That's know. right. Recently, because of public pressure, DFO is re- very reluctantly getting a little bit involved, but you can tell that they just... <laughs> Yeah, they, it's it's. Ask your mom, ask your dad. Yeah. between the province and and and. Federal. But that
0: yeah, then it's it's great. Like it's a talk to them, talk to them, and and it just put everybody in just you just a circle jerk. Like we're just going to go around and around and around and never we'll just keep passing the buck back and forth and never really have to say who who is actually in charge of the of the actual. Yeah, resource. you
1: just have to you just have to look at how Sarah is applied the Species at exactly. Risk Act. Yeah. It's 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 five years from when they recognize a problem, like that. That's disgusting. And that's one full salmon cycle, as you know. Right yep. up here, we got the, the the five-year Chinook. So we find a problem today. They don't have to act on it for, for five years.
2: What's and the
0: cycle? And just what's the cycle on, on steelhead? It's two to four years? That's a
2: very, very complicated question. Oh, great. will um, it, try, <laughs> try. another one. I'll yeah. try and keep it simple <laughs> okay. as I can. Steelhead have a very complicated life history, and that's part of their survival mechanism as well. They're not like salmon, and I mean salmon. There's a there's exceptions, but generally they're fairly rigid. You know, like four years, seven years, depending on the species. Yeah. Steelhead are kind of all over the place, especially river system to river system. And Um, is that
0: you said there's there'll be triggers that are based in habitat and yeah, so quite often,
2: um, quite often the the, and that's for out migration. So migrating out of fresh water. Right. And there is some chatter with the Thompson that that could be what's happening is because the things are getting warmer and there's a little bit more the river's more fertile than it should be due to uh, runoff various reasons they're saying the genetics are still in the river but because those fish reach a certain weight by a certain age there's no trigger there's no genetic trigger to make them take the risk of migrating down to salt water swimming through eagles and seals and whales and everything else they just stay in the river because they're, they're putting on enough weight to survive and thrive. So it's not worth the risk going down to the ocean. But as far as coming back to spawn, um, same as rainbow trout, they all spawn early spring, early mid spring, but you'll get summer run fish that come back anywhere from June through um, about October. And then you'll get what they call winter run fish that'll return between November and April. They all spawn at the same time but they'll return at different times throughout the year so this is why it's very hard to nail down like you know when they spawn when they run what they do and that is part of their survival mechanism is being so varied because if you have major natural event go on um, a slide a flood anything like that there's enough that aren't there that they'll be all right next time around whatever
0: so how does a biologist accurately assess populations when really it's a steady drip throughout the it's throughout the course of the year versus hey listen we've got this six-week window where they're going to hit the mouth of the fraser and work their way up or the mouth of the Skeena. it's like yeah some are coming next week some are coming in about five months you know some are coming the month after that you know it's like that's got to be complicated
2: yeah it's, it's very much monitoring rivers and and very and, and like i say with the, IE test fishery um, down in the Fraser. They have the same same type of test fisheries as well. And they just monitor it over the course of an entire season. Right. And they get an idea that way. The other thing is that <clears throat> with salmon, they, they're more concerned about monitoring it because they're, and again, at first glance, oh, they're, they're worried about conservation. So they're seeing how many fish are. No, they're worried about monitoring it so that we've hit this trigger. Now the net boat's going to go out and we can have all these openings and on and on and on. Whereas steelhead, because there is absolutely no harvest for wild steelhead, right? There are limited harvest opportunities for hatchery steelhead, which are very rare. Um, there's only one hatchery really in this, essentially in the province, while well, in the mainland anyway, <clears throat> that's um, on the Vetter. But at any rate, there really is no harvest of wild steelhead, be it commercial or sport or First Nations. I mean, there, there's none there either. So steelhead,
0: just to, just for, for 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 my own sake and for anybody listening that's not an angler. This is a catch-and-release fishery.
2: That's right. Correct, okay. yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, would there be some level of mortality caused by bad fish handling practice? We absolutely. Had the, we had the folks on from Keep Them Wet Fishing. Yeah, I
2: actually just listened yeah. to that one the other day, Yeah, yeah and they're, they're fantastic. I'm so glad they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. Um, there absolutely is. Part of the issue as is well, um, on a normal year, especially the Bulkley's a really good example because it gets so much pressure, the first angler... To catch and release a fish that comes in fresh, say, in August, September, handles it perfectly, releases it quickly, all good, it's fine. But now that fish gets caught two, well, three more, more times, times, and even if everyone does it the way they're supposed to... There's fatigue. It's having an effect, absolutely. Even if it doesn't kill the fish, it, it is going to have an effect on fecundity, you know, yep. how, how successful it is with spawning. So that, that is something that they're, you know, they, they've started studying... And they, they, we we don't fully know yet the effects but um there absolutely is one and that's where we've w- there's been some discussion now especially with with how poor our runs are lately do you start making a rule you know at, at very least a personal uh you know ethical rule do i go out catch one maybe two and that's my day yeah so there is some discussion around that as well, because yes, fish handling absolutely does have an effect.
0: I actually heard April Vokey talk about that uh, about a year and a bit ago in her podcast, where she was, you know, she loves catching steelhead, but she said there's that gnawing part of her that's like, yeah, you know, how many times should I be doing this? And I mean, I I, I know she wrestled with it because it's a recreational yeah. it's it's a recreational fishery that does it's not a harvest fishery, as you said. Yeah. So, I mean that that is. Uh, there's a, I guess, there's a personal conflict. And then that the other part of it is is that there's also behind all of that, there's an entire industry that makes their living. $500 million probably generated uh, in this province from recreational <laughs> fishing. Absolutely. Yep. And some of that, not all of it, but some of it's going to be tied to steelhead fishing, correct?
2: So, oh, yeah. Well, and especially in the Northwest, yeah, there's absolutely a lot of it is.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's people that make their living on that. So, I um, mean, the, and these are, These are tough waters to navigate uh, for the fish and for the anglers, I guess.
2: Yeah, it is. And, I mean, we've all been guilty of it. We've all been there. I mean, I've had a couple quite successful seasons where there's been days where, you know, you get six, seven fish in, which for me anyway is pretty rare that I'm six or seven steelhead into a day. And you're just loving life, but then you just start getting that little twinge of how much is too much and should I be poking holes in any more of these today? Should I just go sit on the beach and enjoy fall? Yeah. For the afternoon, and then get back at it tomorrow. So there is some, yeah. But but, uh, but as so far it is, as is that debate. Do you, do you think that that's largely shared in the steelhead community? I think it's getting bigger. Yeah. I'm, I'm hearing more and more um, conversations on it. I think it is getting bigger for sure.
0: Okay. Yeah. It, it's a, and it's a tough one to reconcile for anybody. I mean, well, it really is.
2: You you wait all year to, to go to out do it. there and do that, and, and I mean. They call them especially with fly fishing they call it a fish of a thousand casts and they call it that for a reason because you got to work for them and I mean there's oftentimes you'll go days without one not hours and that that's all part of it and it's it doesn't matter we still do it but when you when you start getting into really good fishing it's very very difficult to just put the rod down and think about you know what effect you're having and is it responsible for me to do this you know and I we think about that you know
0: if you look at um we just came through this whole blue tongue issue with wild well, with uh, sheep down in the south, and you know at some point there'll be probably a return of opportunity for people that want to. I mean, I guess it, LEH, I guess for that, Steve. At some point,
1: tough to say. Uh, last resort. I I could honestly see a full closure coming before they go LEH on that, depending on how the numbers come back.
0: But what what wild sheep? I mean, it's they're coveted draws, right? People oh, wait for, yeah. you know, they, they, these are not easy to get, and there's like three of them. And I think the they, you know, wild sheep put a plea out to the guys that got them hey, listen, yeah. I know you've waited for forever for this, you know, but we just took, you know, 60 some sheep out of this very small population. Could you maybe consider standing down? Those are questions that we all wrestle with. I mean, and it's not just in, in fisheries, but in, you know, as we engage with wildlife, sometimes I think people are very fixated on the opportunity and not the resource that creates it, right? And if you can manage things to a surplus, it looks after itself, but you have to find the surplus first. You need a healthy resource to be able to have that opportunity. And if you focused on that, in, you know, really heavily for a little while, you know, if there's a moratorium, and I, I know that people will hate that. I say if there's a moratorium on steelhead fishing or, you know, uh, Chinook fishing in, in rivers. If there's, a, if there's a moratorium that eventually gets you to a better population um is it worth it you know to me that juice is worth the squeeze if it gets us to the other side where you can do it more frequently and with less consequence but you know i, I, I that's a tough one for people to 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 wrestle with you know so i i, I think that conversation is going to be will get more complicated the worse it gets right
2: we're we're already there um because It's becoming, okay, so just myself, for example. I'm actually leaving for Terrace at the end of this week. Right. I'm going to go fish for coho. I'm not targeting steelhead. I mean, I can't guarantee I won't catch one, but I'm not targeting them. Yeah. I absolutely do not look down on anyone who is going to go fishing for them. Well, they're open. They're actually closing them October 12th. Yeah. Um, I will not look down on someone who will go legally fish. Like, I just, I, I won't do it because it's not my decision as long as the law says they can do it. I personally will not Target go them. do it. It just, for me, it doesn't feel good. But what that conversation turns into quite often is, like you said, it, everyone start, it starts eating itself and people, oh, well, it's, I mean, if I want to fish and it, like the defensive thing comes up and then you get these this infighting with everyone who has the same goal to go do this and be able to go do this 10 years from now. Um, and it, the infighting starts over um, opportunity versus con- uh, conservation. Yeah. So that is a big part of the reason why, as far as Steelhead Society is concerned, we do not do opportunity. Y-
0: your message isn't pivoting yep. around opportunity, yeah. right? It's there pi- is
2: no opportunity without without fish. Right. It, it just, it's not there. So we just, we don't get into that. Um, and again, I don't, I'm not going to look down on anyone who legally fishes. Le- hunting's the same thing. If, if it's legal, give her. Like, but... I myself, I'm much more concerned with the conservation end, and I think that's where everyone needs to get to.
0: The um, so when we look at enhancement um, for stock enhancement, we talked You, you, there, you, there's a delineation between wild steelhead um, and 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 hatchery. No different than there is with salmon. So where where do we where do we sit as a? I mean, it's is that. It, some people have real issues with you know having hatchery programs. I mean, we run a very robust hatchery program uh, for salmon um, that we're really proud of. You know, is it is it the, the the best thing that we can do? Probably not, but it's right now. I'd rather have I'd rather have a fish than no fish. Um, but where do you sit? And I, I recognize that a wild salmon or a wild steelhead is a hardier, more more robust, more viable fish and and better breeding stock than a hatchery fish but in the absence of another way to mitigate the stream what else do you do
2: so the concern is there is is that and I mean you're you're right that is a very complicated discussion um, even with salmon it is the concern is that if you do go for enhancement and and like you say and a lot of people are, are saying the same thing I'd rather have a hatchery fish than no fish the trouble is 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 Quite often what can happen, especially with steelhead, they really seem to be sensitive to it. Once you've watered down those genetics, you don't get to go back. That's it. Right. Once you've watered them down and, and messed with it, like there is no going back to, well, we'll do this for a while until we can get habitat and everything else figured out, and then the wild fish will take over. Probably not. Like it's... it's.
0: And is that, being, is, that, is that being studied?
2: Yeah, it, it is. And actually there was a steelhead hatchery in Kitimat, well, there's a salmon hatchery there as well, but they were doing steelhead and they recently stopped because, uh, part of the reason anyway, a lot of those steelhead were naturalizing in the river and they were competing with resident cutthroat, another wild fish, right, cutthroat trout, and Kitimat had quite a healthy population of cutthroat trout. They were big, there was lots of them. Um, They were doing quite well, but what they were finding is that the steelhead were naturalizing in the river. Like Like I said before, when they put on enough weight, they don't go out to the ocean, whatever. So we're putting this artificial population of fish in there that we didn't mean to put there. And now Assuming, it's causing
0: a problem yeah, because now they're staying there. Now you got food competition. Yeah, that's right. Right? Are they more aggressive than a cutthroat trout? That doesn't be. Does that become predatory competition yeah, or or no, just food no, competition? It w- it'd be food
2: competition. Okay. Yeah, I I wouldn't say they're more aggressive per se, but the the, the point of it is is that there you you end up with these little effects downstream that once you find out it's happening. If you're lucky, you can turn it around. If not, you've done irreversible damage. So what they have found with steelhead and this, they've found this actually in quite a few rivers in in, um, northwestern U.S. as well, is that the steelhead actually do better once the hatchery is, once the lights are shut off. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's a different story. Like, I I really, I, I struggle with the hatchery thing myself because I, you know, especially with you guys doing what you're doing with Spruce City, uh, and I mean, the way I look at it with salmon, like it, they're basically on life support. And I mean, it's you know a lot of these little like the intackle you guys are working on, there'd be nothing there, you know. But it's, it's steelhead is a little bit different conversation with that, and and hatcheries generally are not the answer with with steelhead. And and the and the trouble is, is you know you get this. Well, we we should at least try it. Well, it could be too late once you try it. Yeah, that could be the end of it. And wild fish are very very um, adaptable and very diverse and very tough and if they're given a chance they will come back and there's been proof of that down in some of these rivers in the states that have been much more long-term um degraded than ours yeah and they've seen it cycle back when they've fixed the problems and the wild stuff does come back so that's my other my other worry with hatcheries is that people tend to like to like like to rely on the easy answer yeah. And as much as that doesn't a hatchery doesn't seem like an easy answer it kind of is if 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 we can just fully focus on that and that'll fix it that looks like the easy answer. Yeah. And if we don't fix the habitat or don't fix the um bycatch issues this kind of thing then it's all for naught anyway.
0: Yeah. And it it becomes it's a mitigating tool but like you said you need to be sensitive to the fact that it can have consequences. And the the wilding of fish is what everybody you know, the hatchery process, even with the salmon support team, I would think that Dustin, who chairs that, um, I I would suggest that in a perfect world they want that you know as short a shorter term. And is you know, yeah. and, and there's yeah. and there's things that they'd like to experiment with. I think in time, uh, we looked at you know what it was called, Steve ponding. I think is um, they wanted to do river ponding versus you know and get those fish at an earlier stage. Yeah. Uh, and try some of that stuff that, that gets yeah the ret-
1: river implantations. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Get yeah. so there's there's things that on a go forward basis they would like to move that is you know regress that back so those fish get introduced back into habitat quicker to give them a better chance to return. I don't know that that's necessarily viable on the steelhead side the well, same way and,
2: and so that's the thing like you can you know it's there may well be progress to be made there but just as of now with how things are done hatchery wise it's it's not the answer for <clears throat> for wild fish in bc because you're yeah it's it's for steelhead anyway you,
0: are there a, do you think there's enough resources applied to steelhead
2: absolutely not and again i think part of that is because of um the percentage of attention they get, right? So like I've often said, when you look at freshwater fishing licenses in BC, the vast majority of them are sold to stillwater fishermen. Yeah. So you have a lot of money and effort that goes into stocking lakes with, yep. you know, these, all these fancy strains of fish that they've actually genetically engineered to be really good sport fish. And it works. It's great. There's a lot of people get to get out fishing. There's really good high quality opportunities in BC for that but that's where all the focus is because that's where the money is that's what people are spending their licenses to do so to sell more licenses they focus on that and in a sense it's not the worst thing because it keeps people out of wild wild fish you don't have people going out with their kids and bonking five wild fish out of some little creek or river somewhere and again if it can sustain it it can sustain it but it can't so it is good that people get to get out do this enjoy this
0: and it's a restockable, it's, yeah, exactly. It's
2: renewable, yep. but in the process of that, there's very little focus on fish like steelhead because it's such a small portion of you know fishing license holders that are actually paying attention and fishing them and 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 saying anything about them. So
0: on top of lack of resources, um, what about fish farms and? and some of the diseases like PRV and some of the other things that happen in migration corridors, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks uh, with Alexander Morton. Do we think that there's a consequence? Do we think that there's disease and parasites that um, are being visited into steelhead populations that are part of the, the decline?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I haven't personally read anything that specifically, you know, relates to any any study being specific to steelhead on that. And again, that goes back to the amount of attention that that salmon get because they are a much bigger um you know commercial concern, and just a food fish so yep. it, it is it is there's more attention paid to them that said i mean it's death by a thousand cuts, and I have no doubt that when you have steelhead migrating right beside salmon past these farms and this and they're they're you know they're sampling the salmon and seeing that they're they're just full of sea lice. I have no doubt that it's affecting steelhead as well because steelhead are not immune to sea lice or prv or any of that okay so it's just one of these things where you have all these small factors that add up and then and we you know you get the the finger pointing well this isn't that big of a deal so we should keep doing this i i I do believe that the fish farms being phased back will probably help
0: so let's talk about Let's talk about some solutions. Let's let's end this with some solutions and try to find some hope. It doesn't sound like it's hopeful, but let's try to, yeah. let's try to offer some level of hope. So um, a couple of things that you've got is selective fishing methods and terminal fisheries, uh, pound traps. Can you speak to any of that?
2: Yeah, so especially now with, and again, salmon is the main driver of this, which I don't really care how we get there as long as we get there. It's fine by me. Yeah. And I mean, salmon are... I'm very concerned about them as well, um, but so b- because the populations are getting so bad, there is a little bit more urgency to try and figure this out, and one of the things that is finally being looked at is um, selectable you know harvest. so instead of using gill nets and, and um, basically methods of fishing that kill everything you catch. Yeah, uh, because even even in the ocean with seine boats and all that, oh well, they they have recovery tanks in the boat. It, it's not, yeah. it's not a thing. Like yep. there's, unless you have a DFO enforcement agent on every single boat watching every single one and finding them every time, it's not a thing. Like you're, you're you're killing a lot of bycatch. So <clears throat> with selective fisheries such as pound traps, the way they operate is you don't even need to handle a fish before you decide whether you want to kill it or not. That, that will be huge. That will be absolutely huge. And the way technology is now is they can even sample, t- take a, a scale sample for DNA sampling essentially and get the results back same day as far as salmon are concerned. And they, they can know what stock they're actually fishing. So in the Skeena, they can figure out the difference between a, a Babine sockeye and a uh, Maurice Lake sockeye. Okay. So they can whittle it right down to focus only on fisheries that can sustain it and everything else gets let go, and it goes up the river and spawns. That that'll be huge. Yeah, yeah massive. If, if we can, if we can get in, get that going, like.
0: How, so how does that happen? How do you make? How, how does that get put into play? What, what's required? Who who needs to embrace that? Um, Who's doing it?
2: Well, so so, the, the way the 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 one on the Skeena is getting set up, well, hopefully getting set up. Last we heard, it was looking like they were starting on it. Um, <clears throat> it's generally First Nations that. At, at very least has to be involved if not leading the charge right and you know in, in my experience they want fish as bad as you and I do so it there there is a lot of hope there there really is and, and generally you know it's once they get fed up with a with government inaction, the same as we do things do start to get done so that that is that's the start
0: that's a force multiplier too. They've got terrific resources, great people that work in a, in a lot of First Nations fisheries. Um, obviously, their passion is is uh, is is out in front of it. Um, it's part of a lifestyle. It's part of traditions. But I think the collaborative and and the compounding uh, nature of taking people like uh, in, or organizations like Steelhead Society and other people that can work with First Nations and and apply all of that pressure to government um, and and the will that 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 happens when you when you bring all of those resources that's a lot of agency that you get to put um at the people that are currently being charged with the management of the resource i think nothing but good can come from that
2: well that's my biggest hope is that instead of going in the direction of finger pointing once everything's gone blaming each other i'm hoping it goes the other way which it kind of is is everyone getting together and trying to fix it that 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 will fix it i believe but it won't be overnight
0: um Elwer river dam for 100 years your fish returned in healthy numbers within five years of the dam renewal.
2: Yeah, so that was down in the States there and, and um I again that pretty much what I gave you there with the notes, that's about all the info I have. I, I I don't have the specifics, but that it's the timeline that's interesting there. Is that a river that was dammed for so long and uh basically could not support, you know, any more than very, very small runs of fish came back that fast
0: within five years, one life cycle. But one you gotta cycle. get there before that. But life... you
2: as you said, you have to have the will to really do you, do we want this bad enough to actually fix it? And the other the other concerning thing to me though is, is like there's two ways of looking at it. The the part that kinda concerns me is that if they are that resilient and that tough that they came back that fast, how badly are we screwing up how many things to keep <laughs> them as down as we are? Yeah, that yeah. that's kind of yeah I hate to think that way, but it makes you wonder. Yeah, it,
0: yeah, and I mean the the we've been in this crisis moment with salmon, and it feel I, I've only been here since 2015, and from the the time I've been here, it is well before my arrival that salmon have been um, you know on the precipice of being extinct, and steelhead were were well I, I think I- at least in concert with, and in some yeah, cases It is it, roughly the same, yeah, same it, timeline it, it, in a couple of in a couple of uh, river systems probably in advance of. You know, steelhead started to suffer before some of the salmon populations, so I I am I'm compelled by um, you know organizations like the Steelhead Society that you know are, are focusing on you know trying to champion the cause. I, you know, we wanted to to have this podcast to not not that it doesn't have visibility, but we need to add it into the conversation. Um, you have you know s- uh, salmon uh, and, and pick one other than you know a couple of maybe more popular commercially fished ones um but you have salmon and steelhead both at the you know at the on the brink of extinction uh some river systems that are, are functionally extinct or some uh, pardon me certain uh certain populations that are functionally extinct and gone um and it it's we have to start to wait, much, m- much like all the discussion that Steve had before about being uh, involved and adding your voice to the conversation. Uh, we need to support organizations like this uh, so that we can compel government and uh, the people charged with managing these resources to do better and start looking for solutions. It's not about looking to, to find new people to blame. It's we're way past that point. I don't, you know, I don't care wh- whose feet we want to lay this at. It doesn't matter whose feet it's at. We somebody's got to pick up this problem and find a solution and find it quickly.
2: That's right. All right.
0: Thanks to Dan Orser and the uh, from the Steelhead Society for coming and lending his uh, voice and some, some great insight into the the plight of our steelhead. Uh, we got some solutions, so we got to make them happen. Stevie, anything you want to add?
1: Get involved. Say it over and over again like a broken, bloody record. Get involved. The only thing that's going to change things is your voice.
0: All right, so there you got it, Stevie Wonder himself. Add your voice to the cause. Uh, stay tuned for our upcoming episode in a couple weeks. We'll be with Jim Heffelfinger, the uh, fish uh, a fish—the wildlife science coordinator for the Arizona Fish and Game Department. Uh, frequent contributor on the Meat Eater podcast. We're going to sit down and talk about wildlife science and all that's involved in it. Uh, until next time, we are in the Bare Bones Studio. So, on behalf of Dan Orser, Matty and Stevie Wonder. And Discount D, thanks for listening to Cut Banks Conversation. Cheers.